So we find ourselves again this morning in the book of Romans, the 11th chapter, which addresses the remnant of Israel, that portion of Israel which has not rejected the Messiah and has, by grace through faith, obtained the salvation that Jesus brought to the whole world. And the main point of this chapter is that the rejection of the Jews is not a complete thing. It's not a total thing. God has not categorically set them aside. God's desire and intention is still to save as many of the Jews as is possible. And that's the main point of chapter 11, that there will be a remnant. There will be those, the Jews, that will be saved. That we've, we've spent two chapters talking about how God has, as a nation, how he set them aside. And now as individuals, how when they rejected him, he rejected them. Amen? But now we're in this chapter that is dealing with how God is going to bring a people out. He's going to bring out a remnant for his namesake. There are going to be those that are going to follow him. Amen. I'm so thankful that I know that in a world that's going the wrong direction, God's always going to have a people that are walking against the flow. Amen. God's always going to have a people that will follow him. He will always have a remnant. Amen. Come on. The prophet knelt in the cave and said, God, there's nobody left but me. I'm it. I'm all there is. And God said, you don't even have a clue. And there, there are 6,000 that have never bowed their knee to the prophet belly. You don't even know about. God will always have a people who will follow him. And I want to be a part of that people. Amen. Our text is Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. We're going to go through verse 15 today, 11 through 15. It says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Amen. And I know that reading that and, and some of that seems doesn't in the modern mind, the, 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 the art culture and the way we look at things and the way the translation is doesn't always seem to make real good sense. So I'm going to do my best in the next few moments to take that pass and just open it up for you. Is that okay? All right, so verse 11 opens a new section. We, we've, we've covered up until now verses 1 through 10 have dealt with a specific topic or specific thing that Paul was trying to say. Now we're opening a new section and it opens with the same kind of question that the first section of this chapter opened with. Uh, have they stumbled and should they fall? Has, has God rejected them? And, and again, Paul gives the, the emphatic answer, God forbid or no. So the question is simple. Is Israel's failure final? Is their rejection by God final? Have they fallen so far that they cannot be redeemed? Have they drifted so far away from God that it is impossible for them to be restored to God? And the answer at the outset is a resounding no. God's rejection of Israel is not final. The Israelites have, have stumbled, but they're not beyond recovery. 
Now, the word that he used is had they stumbled that they should fall. That word stumbled is a uh, stumbled, the English word is a weak translation of the underlying Greek word, which means to, to crash into something. And the reason that is important is because it harkens back to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, we, we talked about how that Jesus was the stumbling stone. And remember, we said it then too, that word stumble really doesn't mean just to trip over something. It means to run into it. And we talked about how that Jesus Christ was the rock of offense. He was the, 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 the rock that the Jews, they didn't just stumble over him. They ran headlong into him. They crashed into him. And he was the opposite of everything they thought. He was the opposite of everything they believed the Messiah should have been. He, he, didn't, he wasn't based on the, the, the legalistic fulfillment of the law, but he was based on the, the faith-based relationship with God. And, and he didn't make any sense to them. And they rejected him because they had rejected the premise of the law in the first place. The premise of the law was that you trusted God, that you put your faith in God, and that you obeyed God. And it was your faith and your obedience that made the law effective. But they had twisted the law into a system that by their works, they became righteous. And because of that, Jesus Christ became the obstacle that they ran headlong into. He, he didn't adhere to their idea of the law. He was the man who said to the lame on, the, on, the, on the, that, that sacred Sabbath day, take up your bed and walk. They said, how can you do that? That's in defiance of the law of God. That's in defiance of the, and he said, I am the law. I am the lawgiver. I can say what I want to say. Amen. If I say take up your bed and walk, uh, then you need to take up your bed and walk. Uh, amen. So he was, he was everything that they didn't expect him to be. He was more than just a stumbling stone then. He was the rock that they crashed into. But that condition is not permanent. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us, that God has a higher purpose at work in the whole situation. How many times do we question the situation that we're in without really stopping to understand God doesn't just see me where I am and he doesn't just see what I'm facing right now. He's got a plan that's bigger than what I can see. He's got a plan that's bigger than what I understand. There's something unfolding here that has divine purpose. Do you believe the scripture said the footsteps of a good man are ordered by God? Do you believe that? Then you don't end up anywhere. If you're a righteous follower of Jesus Christ, I say, well, oh, no, Brother McCall, now I'm not always righteous. I've made mistakes. If you're, if you're the kind of person that repents of your sins, it puts it all into the blood of Jesus and is doing your best to follow him, amen, the Bible said he, he orders your footsteps. He orders your footsteps. That means that nothing comes into your life. As bad as it may seem to be, as terrible as the tragedy may be that God doesn't already know about. And there is a plan of God. There is a divine purpose at work that is bigger than the moment. Amen? And so, so Paul begins to tell us that God has this divine purpose at work here. There's something bigger than just the moment. The salvation of the Gentiles comes from the falling away of the Jews. And the salvation of the Gentiles is intended to provoke the Jews to jealousy. So that they will once again desire the blessings of God. Isn't it incredible how that God's 
mercy works, how he brings good out of evil, how a situation that was so terrible can become such a blessing, how the, how the, the, the sickness or the, or the trauma or, or the crisis that arises in your life that seems like it's about to overwhelm you and you seem you're about to be crushed beneath it and then, and then somewhere on the other side you look back and you see the grace of God and the mercy of God at work and you recognize he makes good out of evil. He turns ashes into beauty. Amen. He takes that which was meant to harm me and he makes it work for his good. And so that's what God is doing with this situation with the Jews. He takes the Jewish rejection of Jesus Christ and he makes it work for his purpose. He uses their rejection to bring salvation to the Gentiles. He uses their rejection to provoke a, a, or to, to ignite a Gentile revival. You read the text of the book of Acts. When they go into the cities to preach and teach, they go first to the synagogues. They go first to the Jews. And the Jews reject the message. And where do they end up? They go to the Gentiles and they preach the gospel. And the Gentiles receive it. God is doing this. He has a purpose in this. There's a reason in this. Because it is the desire. It is the fervent hope. It is the, it is the purpose of God that that Gentile revival will provoke jealousy in the Jews. That's what the verse says. Now, I know none of you guys ever did it. But perhaps some of you ladies would remember whenever, you know, you wanted to make a guy jealous, so you flirted with somebody you didn't really care about. I know you guys were all above that, right? <laughs> We've all been subject to that kind of foolishness. Amen. But making someone jealous, provoking someone to jealousy to get their attention can work in two different ways. Uh, it doesn't always, how many can testify, you don't have to raise your hand, but it doesn't always work out the way you planned it to work out. Amen. When you provoke someone to jealousy, on the one hand, it can cause them to become bitter and hard-hearted. And it can push them away instead of drawing them close. But on the other hand, sometimes it causes them to realize what they've neglected. It causes them to realize what how how special of a thing it is that they have that they have neglected, and it, it results in a strong desire to to get the relationship right again. Amen. We've all seen it work both ways, uh, but it, it's going to work one of those two ways. So God uses the Gentiles to provoke jealousy among the Jews, and that jealousy will manifest itself in one of two ways in, in the life of the individual Jew. It will either deepen the divide that has drawn them away from Jesus Christ, or it will result in the desire to become reconciled with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, the preferred result is that they would recognize the blessings of God that are being poured out on the Gentiles as something that they should have had and that they'll seek after it, and that seeking after it, they'll find it. Amen? Verse 12 says, Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles... How much more their fullness. 
So God, in his great mercy, causes the fall of Israel to become the richest of the world. He causes the diminishing of Israel to become the riches of the Gentiles. Now, the word riches is used here in an unusual way. Normally, the word riches signifies a wealth of possessions, worldly riches, if you will, that are the sole possession of the owner. A rich man is rich because of what he has, and it is his. It's not yours. Just try to get it from him. He didn't get rich by being uh, loose with what he does with his money. He got rich by being frugal, amen? And, and you can't hardly pry a penny out of his hands, amen? So that's the way riches is normally used. But in this case, the, the, the language is, is such that it indicates an abundance of blessing, not worldly goods, but blessings, that rather than being the sole possession of the owner, are available for other people, perhaps as a charitable gift. So the fall of the Israelites has become a wealth of blessings that have been bestowed upon the world, the riches of the world. The rejection of Jesus Christ by the Israelites has become a wealth of blessings that have been bestowed upon the Gentiles. It's the riches of the Gentiles. The point of this verse is this. If the fall of the Israelites resulted in such abundant riches, such an abundant blessing, how much richer of a blessing will their restoration become? God will bring about Jewish redemption because it will be a greater blessing to the world, a richer blessing to the world than their rejection already has been. Now, this passage does not explain how God is going to restore the Jews, uh, how such a phenomenal blessing will come. Uh, at this point, all you can do is speculate. I'm going to give you the main line of speculation uh, with the majority of scholars, and we'll just leave it right there, okay? But, but the majority of scholars, or many scholars, point to the belief that when the Jews finally acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, it ushers in the millennial reign. That's the final event before the millennial reign happens in a lot of different uh, viewpoints of end time. And so that would make a very good application then for if their rejection was the riches of the world, how much more will their fullness be? Amen? Now, Paul's point does not seem to be to expound upon end-time events, and so we're not going to spend a lot of time there. If you have a different theory about the end-time, that's okay. I'm not trying to put out uh, teaching on the end-time this morning. I'm really trying to teach on what Paul is telling. But he does say that somewhere down the road, the restoration of the Jews is an even greater blessing. It's an even, it's an even greater wealth of riches to the world. So what he's trying to do here is to remind the Gentiles. They don't have any cause to celebrate the downfall of the Jews. Instead, they have an incentive to seek Jewish salvation. Although the Jewish fall has brought great blessings to them and the Jewish fall has opened up the riches of heaven for the world, they have more to gain from a Jewish restoration than they did from the Jewish fall. Amen? 
Because if the Jewish fall resulted in the revival that opened up salvation to the entire world, to whosoever will, the Jewish restoration will result in a, a final greater blessing where the whole world will see the coming of the kingdom of God. Amen? Now, one thing that we should note here is that the salvation of the Gentiles, and this is very important, this is key. Salvation of the Gentiles was not an accidental diversion in God's plan. God didn't just uh, make salvation available to the whole world regardless of race or creed or heritage as a secondary plan. It was not his plan B. With God, there is no plan B. Do you understand that? He knows the end from the beginning. He planned it this way all along. You start reading the Old Testament, you start reading scriptures, amen, this idea of Jewish individualism, this idea that it's just for the Jews, you start seeing all the way through scripture from the very giving of the law. It was never restricted just to the Jew, but it was to the Jew and to the Gentile who travels with you or sojourns with you. Or he who, it, it, was, it was possible even under Old Testament law for a Gentile to become a proselyte and become uh, put himself under the law of God and become saved by the law of God. This Jewish uh, individualism or I, this ideal that the, that the Jews were the only ones, that's nowhere in Scripture. It was always, now they were the chosen nation, and they were the nation that God used to broadcast His glory to the world, and they were supposed to show the rest of the world how to serve God. But the idea that, that Gentiles would be saved is not just a New Testament idea. It's throughout the whole of the Word of God over and over again. And the scriptures that Paul has quoted in the, in the course of the book of Romans have been scriptures that point to that. But now God has used the nation of Israel to bring his plan to fruition. And he has used the rejection of the, uh, of, of the nation of Israel as a whole to open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the whole world, to whosoever will. And the salvation that the Gentiles have experienced is not exclusively a Gentile salvation. Just like a Gentile could have been saved in the Old Testament, this is Paul's point. Jews can still be saved, even though that we've talked so much about their rejection, and we talked so much about how they turned their back on God, and we talked so much about how God has pushed them away, even now they can turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. This isn't exclusively a Gentile period of salvation. Amen? As many Jews as would believe and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, could also be saved. But just as God used the Jews to usher in the church age, he's going to use the Jews at some point to usher in the millennial reign, to bring about the very end. So the riches of God's blessings will arise, the richest blessings that he has, will arise from the fullness of the Jews or from their restoration when they're brought back to the belief in Jesus Christ. Now, we say that we understand that not every individual Jew will be saved, just like never, not every individual Gentile will be saved. But there will be a turning. At some point, there will be a turning. Verse 13 says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. So now Paul turns his attention to the Gentiles. And for the next 12 verses, he's going to speak directly to Gentiles. And first, he declares himself 
to be the apostle of the Gentiles. And he says, I magnify my office. Now, that's a strange turn of phrase. One way to translate that, perhaps a better way to translate, would be I'm making the most of my ministry. The word office is from the Greek word that means ministry. And it refers to area of service unto God or mission given by God. So Paul's ministry was his specific assignment from God, which is delineated in the verse, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. That's Paul's mission. That's what he's called to do. I am an apostle to the Gentiles. The word magnify is translated from a Greek word that means to honor, to praise, to give glory. And it's a word that specifically relates to glorifying God. It is never used in reference to receiving or giving glory to a man or to humanity. It's always used in reference to giving glory to God. So Paul's not saying that he honors or glorifies himself. He said, I honor or glorify the ministry that God has given me. The glory belongs to God, not to him. Listen, if God has given you a ministry, if you're a Sunday school teacher, which most of them are not in here, if you're a musician, if you're a singer, if you're a preacher, if you if you if you're you you help mop the halls and vacuum the auditorium, if you have a ministry, you need to recognize that that ministry is His, not yours. And He gets the glory, not you. This ministry, this mission, this calling, teaching the Word of God, expounding the Word of God, and opening the Word of God, and making it understandable, and making it so people can see and understand and and apply it to their lives. That may be my mission, but I don't get the glory for it. I don't get the credit for it. That's why I don't have to be qualified for it. Amen? Because it's His ministry. It's His mission. And it exists solely to glorify Him. Amen? So when Paul says, I magnify my office, his point is that he has the highest respect for his calling. He respects the ministry that God has given him. He respects the calling that God has placed upon him. When you respect your ministry, you apply yourself to it. When you respect your calling, you pour yourself into it. Amen? Come on, I've had jobs I didn't respect. I've had jobs that I hated and detested. I worked for a little while in between jobs as a, as a donut delivery guy. I got up at ungodly hours of the day, and I went and picked up a, a van and picked up a van load of donuts, and I drove around and delivered continental breakfast to hotels. I hated that job. I didn't have a lot. I didn't pour myself into it. I didn't give myself to it. I, I, it was just something I did. But it wasn't something I was because I didn't have any respect for it. God gives you a ministry. You better have enough respect for it to do it right. Amen? When God gives you a ministry... You gotta have enough respect. If you don't, if you don't pour yourself into that ministry, if you don't give yourself to that ministry, what you're saying is I don't have any respect for what God has called me to. 
I don't have any respect. And it's not that that means that I'm diminished. That means that I've diminished God. Because it's not my ministry. It's His. And He has called me to it. And part of the way that I praise Him, and part of the way that I magnify Him, and part of the way that I show forth His goodness is through the ministry that He's given me. And so I have to be, I have to be responsible for that and respect that and pour myself into it. So Paul says that he honors and he reverences his ministry to the Gentiles. And because of that, he strives to fulfill it with all of his might and all of his devotion. He's doing everything he can to see that come to pass. Verse 14 says, If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. Now, we're going to see what he strives or how he strives to make the most of his ministry. By seeing, he does it by seeing as many Gentiles as possible converted to Christianity. He hopes that he will provoke the Jews to emulation through his ministry. So Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, right? But his love is his countrymen. We've said before, Paul said earlier in this book, I would lay down my life if that would save my fellow countrymen. So Paul says, I give myself to my ministry. I pour myself into my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to emulation. That word emulation is the same word that was used in verse 11 that was translated as jealousy. It's the same concept. It's the same word. He's saying uh, that, that God uses the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to, to jealousy. So Paul said, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I pour myself in that ministry. I'm trying to reach as many Gentiles as I can that I might provoke the Jews to jealousy. That those which are of my flesh that some of them might be saved. So he said, I pour myself into the ministry that God has given me. I give myself completely to that ministry that God has given to me to be a part of so that I might see my brethren saved. It's kind of funny. I, I'm trying to see as many Gentiles saved as I can so that it might cause a Jew to be saved. I'm pouring myself not into what God called me to do, and by doing what God called me to do, the passion of my heart is going to be the thing that my brethren, that I love with everything in my life, that's going to come to pass by me doing what God called me to do. Nothing's nearer to Paul's heart than that his brethren, the Jews, would say, I'm sure that Paul would have loved to have been able to say, I'm the apostle to the Jews. But he wasn't. He was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But he said, I'm pouring myself into that ministry. I'm giving myself to that ministry. I'm doing everything I can to see the Gentiles saved that I might provoke to jealousy them which are my flesh and might save some of them. Amen? So Paul sees his ministry to the Gentiles as an indirect means of bringing his own kinsmen to faith in Christ. Them which are my flesh. He hopes that as he ministers to the Gentile, it's going to result in the salvation of the Jews. And Paul knew from experience that the salvation of every individual Jew was too much to hope for. The, the Jews of his generation are hardened. They are strongly resistant to the gospel. They've already rejected Jesus Christ. But at the same time, he knew that they, 
they still had the ability to be saved. They still had the free will to believe. And that if he could arouse them to envy, if he could arouse them to jealousy, that, that perhaps some of them might be saved. And so I'm going to give myself, you know, I'd like to see this whole city saved. I'd like to see the whole world saved. I wouldn't want anybody ever to die and go to a devil's hell. I don't want anybody to ever face the judgment of God. But I can't control the whole world. I can pour myself into the ministry that God has given me and hope that somehow some will be saved. That's all, I'm, that's all I can do. Brother Donnie, I want, I want everybody to be saved. I, I can hope that somehow my ministry impacts the everybody that I know. But I can't answer for them. They're going to answer to God for themselves. But I can answer for the ministry that he's given me. And I can pour myself into it. I can do the very best that I know to do. And I can apply myself as well as I know to apply myself. And I can hope that by fulfilling that ministry, that just perhaps some of them might be saved. I believe in end time apostolic revival. I don't believe this church will leave this world as a defeated church. But I also recognize that this culture is headed 180 degrees away from God. And we, while we will see revival, we're never going to see the whole world changed. We're never going to see that culture turned around. I'm just trying to snatch as many as I can from the flames of hell before it's too late. Amen. If we can just save some. If we can just reach some. Amen. Verse 15 said, For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Verse 15 restates the thought of verse 12. Verse 14 kind of restated the thought of verse 11. And now verse 15 continues with the restatement of verse 12. If God's rejection of Israel has led the whole world or has led to the world being reconciled to him, the opportunity has been given for Gentiles to be saved, for the whole world, the whosoever will, to come to Jesus Christ and experience salvation under the New Testament plan, the gospel of Jesus Christ. How much more will God's eventual acceptance of the Jews mean to the world? He says it will mean life from death. God's rejection of the unbelieving Jews led to the Reconciliation of the world. Riches for the world in verse 12. Reconciliation of the world in verse 15. Both of those things refer to the salvation of the Gentiles. Reconciliation basically means the, the removal of hostility or, or restoration of peace and friendship between two people that have been separated. They've been estranged. And, and in this case, we're talking about salvation. It has to do with being estranged from God because of sin, being separated from God because of unrighteousness. And reconciliation means being put back into right standing with God, being brought back together with God so that there are no more is a chasm, a gulf between us, but we are reconciled together. Aren't you thankful you've been reconciled to him? Aren't you thankful for the mercy of God? We were, we were separated from him. 
Our sin drove a wedge between us and him. We were, we were isolated away from God, but God made a way where there seemed to be no way for us to be reconciled to him. So what happens when we're reconciled to him? What happens when hardened Jews are converted? Paul likens it to life from the dead. Life from the dead. Israel was dead spiritually. But reconciliation with God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ would result in new life. When those hardened Jews finally are converted to see Jesus Christ as the Messiah, they're going to experience the same thing that the Gentiles experienced. They will be born again. Amen. They're going to receive a brand new life. That which was spiritually dead will spring to life again. It will be life from the dead. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. I'm coming to a close with this. Ephesians 2. Do you know I'm going to use Ephesians 2 and 1, 4, and 5. And then I'm going to real quickly go to 1 John 2 and 1. Ephesians 2 and 1 says... We just like, I'm sorry, it says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. So we were, we were dead in, in trespasses and sins, just like the Jews were. We, we were dead. That was our condition. We were lost and undone without hope. We didn't have any hope. But verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but God. But God, where would I be if it wasn't for those two words? I was dead. I was lost. I was lifeless. But God. God stepped in, but God changed the situation. But before I could love God, he first loved me, but God showed up uh, and he showed me his love, uh, but God showed up uh, and he gave me his mercy, but God stepped in. I was headed the wrong direction, but God changed my direction. He quickened us. That word means to be made alive or to bring back to life. He has made us alive again. The whole point this morning is that failure doesn't have to be final. The whole point of the passage is that rejection doesn't have to be the end of the story. Inasmuch as the Jews were rejected by God, inasmuch as they were separated from God, inasmuch as they once knew God and had, had drifted away from God, that doesn't have to be the end of the story. The whole passage is about the fact that God, even while they're separate from God, God's reaching for them, trying to reconcile them, trying to bring them back into fellowship with Him. You need to settle that truth in your heart this morning. Failure isn't final. Failure isn't Final. Your enemy delights in trying to convince you that when you fail God, it's all over. There is no more repentance. 
There remains no more mercy. You've crossed the line. You've broken the barrier. There is no way to get back to the grace of God. But nothing could be further from the truth. Failure doesn't have to be final. Failure doesn't have to define your life. Failure doesn't have to be the end of your story. Listen, I've failed. I have fallen. I've made mistakes. But God, uh, who is rich in his mercy, uh, but God, uh, who has uh, shown me abundant love, uh, but God, uh, who reached down and got a hold of me, he has caused that which was dead to live again. Amen? First John chapter 2 and verse 1 said, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Christ the righteous. Why don't you stand with me? John admonished us. Sin not. Don't sin. Why not? Why not sin? Because sin will kill you spiritually. Sin brings spiritual death into your life. Sin will choke you off from the presence of God and will slowly but surely drain you of the life that God has placed within you. But that isn't the end of the story. He said, don't sin because the wages of sin is death. If you sin, it's going to kill you. It's going to destroy you spiritually. It's going to drive you away from God. It's going to separate you from God. But that isn't the end of the story. If you sin, if you fail, if you stumble and you fall, remember this. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father through Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. John goes on in the next verse, and we're not going to go there, but he talks about the uh, propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. That word propitiation has to do with the blood that is applied to the mercy seat. And what he's saying is, if you sin, uh, if you made a mistake, if you messed up, listen, there are some people under the sound of my voice uh, that your enemy has told you, you can't ever get back uh, to where you used to be. You can't ever be restored. You can't ever stand again in the grace of God and the mercy of God. You failed him one time too many. You've gone too far. Uh, but I come to tell you, there's a promise the word of God. Uh, he makes dead things live again. Uh, he makes the dead to rise again. Uh, amen. If you have sinned, uh, you have an advocate with the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, he becomes uh, the blood that's poured uh, on the mercy seat uh, that covers your sin uh, and covers your life. Uh, and when you're dead in trespasses, God quickens you back to life again. When you fail, when you fall, when you make a mistake, the same God who quickened you to life the first time can quicken you to life again. Because with Him, listen, this is the point of the whole passage. Death doesn't have to be the end of the story. Death doesn't have to be the final word. This is that season of the year where dead things spring to life again. This is that time when we reflect upon the cross as such a wonderful Savior who died, was buried in a borrowed tomb. This is that season where we remember
death doesn't have to be the end of the story. He makes dead things live again. I feel the grace of God walking through this place right now. The mercy of God. I know that I know the crowd is small. I know that there's a diminished amount of people here today, and I, I know all the circumstances. And I understand that sometimes it's hard in, 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 a, in a smaller atmosphere to really just pour yourself out before God. But I'm telling you right now, there's something happening spiritually in this place right now that you don't want to neglect. You don't want to walk away from. I'm asking you, please, if you find a place of prayer for the next few moments. God, he wants to call dead things back to life. He wants to revive dreams. He wants to revive ministry. He wants to revive callings. He wants to revive purpose. He wants to revive vision. He wants to allow the anointing of God just to stir up a fresh touch in somebody's life this morning. He is the one who makes the dead to live again. Would you call out to him right now in Jesus' name?